Welcome to the LDN Radio Show, brought to you by the LDN Research Trust. I'm your host, Linda Elsigood. I have an exciting lineup of guest speakers who are LDN experts in their field. We will be discussing low-dose naltrexone and its many uses in autoimmune diseases, cancers, etc. Thank you for joining us. We are proud to present a 2021 conference presentation recording by Dr. Kent Holtoff. Further presentations can be found on www.ldnrtevents.com along with webinars, the LDN Book 3, etc. Hello, it's Dr. Kent Holtorp again uh, for part two of the autoimmune thyroiditis as a core cause of hypothalamic pituitary dysfunction, mitochondrial dysfunction, obesity, and systemic illness. And uh, I went a little over on the first part, so I'll try to speed it up a little bit here. But uh, again, really trying to uh, convey the fact that, you know, the thyroid and autoimmune thyroiditis is basically a um, more than just a a thyroid illness. It's part of a multi-system disease and how immune modulatory therapies, i.e. LDN, um, and peptides and other things as well can actually uh, be part of that and serve to, in addition to replacing thyroid, to fixing this whole underlying vicious cycle that we see in so many chronic illnesses. Um, so let's go ahead and get started um, here. And again, uh, disclosure that uh, I'm Chief Medical Officer of Integrative Peptides, and but the opinions expressed have nothing to do with Integrative Peptides. These are purely my own, and any products and claims that I make have uh, uh, basically, any, any claims I make have nothing to do with any products, including any of those of Integrative Peptides, and uh, nothing uh, has been reviewed by the FDA uh, in this presentation. And then the legalese that my attorneys made me put to the right there. And you can pause it uh, and read that if you want to do that. Um, So let's look into what are the required steps to have thyroid activity? Well, you have to have hypothalamic pituitary dysfunction. You have to then secrete TSH from the pituitary. You have to have thyroid function, which secretes mainly T4. Um, You then have to have the thyroid go into the cell. Then you have to convert the inactive T4 to T3. Then you have to bind the receptor. Then you have to have activation and downstream um, uh, uh, activation of the receptor. And so it has, so it actually has uh, an activity. And are these common or uncommon in terms of dysfunction of the thyroid? So what causes dysfunction of the thyroid most often? Now, again, if you 
standard literature and a chronologist, standard doctors will say, well, it's primary hypothyroidism. The thyroid just stops working. That's the most common cause of low thyroid. Unfortunately, that's not the case. It's the least common cause, but the most easily recognized cause. So when you look at, again, thyroid function, it's not a common cause, but it's the one that all the, the doctors can easily detect. So it's felt to be the most common cause. Um, the, uh, all the other causes, hypothalamic pituitary dysfunction, which we talked about in the last section, um, is very common with any chronic illness, aging, uh, immune dysfunction will, will cause that, mitochondrial dysfunction, uh, all those things, just inflammation, uh, stress, uh, all those things will cause hypothalamic pituitary dysfunction. Uh, so very common uh, secretion of uh, TSH, which is part of the pituitary function. Transport into the cell is the rate limiting step. So anytime you get mitochondrial dysfunction, which is part of this vicious cycle, especially if you look at Lyme disease, you know, kind of is the model of that or chronic fatigue syndrome um, with mitochondrial dysfunction, it's, it's rate limiting step. So very common, but there's no great test for it. Uh, but we talked about having high reverse T3 is a marker for that. And we'll talk about other things as well. Conversion of T4 to T3, which doctors poo-poo and go, oh, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we hear that from all the, you know, integrative doctors. Uh, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a problem. It's very common. Um, and interesting, the peptide um, epitalin and pinealian will actually um, fix the dysfunctional deiodinases. It's pretty amazing. Even if we remove the pituitary, it's kind of spooky. It's kind of like um, the Einstein's uh, 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 force, the spooky force at a distance type thing. Um, I know you are physics buffs there. Um, receptor binding uh, is common. So many toxins, pesticides, plastics will block the thyroid receptor, usually in the periphery, but not in the hypothalamus. So the TSH does not change, but you're not getting activation in the periphery. So the there's no thyroid activity in the cells, but the TSH looks fine. Downstream activation, we're not quite sure. Some um, of these the endocrine blockers work via blocking activation. Uh, and that's a different lecture, but uh, it's unknown exactly, but it's the, we know what happens, but don't know how often. And again, a, the reason that primary is felt to be the most common because it's the easiest to, to detect where you get a high TSH. And that's what is really become the definition of low thyroid is high TSH, which is crazy, it's not. Um, so 
Uh, let's look at even just stress. And people think, oh, stress lowers the immunity, but stress is a killer and it does so many things. It doesn't lower the immunity, but it modulates the immunity. It lowers Th1, so you can't fight intracellular infection, but raises that Th2, so raises all the inflammatory cytokines um, and and basically all that activation causes insulin resistance, uh, increased reactive oxygen species, and that, but you can't fight these intracellular infections. And uh, so when cultures were incubated from the serum of physiologically stressed or dieting, just dieting individuals, it was shown to be a dramatic reduction in the uptake of T4 by cells that correlate with the degree of stress. So the more stress, the less the cells are able to uptake the T4. So another reason that T4 is not a good, uh, basically, uh, medication to replace uh, low thyroid with or to optimize your thyroid because it's the first thing that's most effective. Again, T3 uptake is effective, but not nearly as much as we talked about uh, in the previous. So serum from non-stressed individuals had no effect, while those with significantly stressed had up to 44% reduction in T4 uptake in the cell. So the T4, you know, so the, the serum levels don't correlate with what's in the cell. We assume it does, but actually, so it's going to be 44% higher, not because it's 44% more is going in the cells because it's 44% is not going into the cell. So it's actually an inverse correlation of what's in the serum and what's in the cell and inside the cell. And the TSH had no correlation because as we uh, talked about that the pituitary completely different than the rest of the body. And let's look at fibromyalgia patients. Here's 13 fibromyalgia patients um, versus 10 controls. They found that all, all of the patients with fibromyalgia were hypothyroid when they did stimulation tests despite the fact that their thyroid standard thyroid tests, including TSH, T4, T3, uh, were all in the normal range. And in fact, the fibromyalgia patients tended to have a lower TSH, which makes sense from what we're saying, of 0.86 versus the healthy controls had a TSH of 1.42. So you would think the fibromyalgia patients had, if you go by endocrinology textbooks, have a higher thyroid because their TSH is lower, but you would be mistaken. So um, shows how that the TSH can really lead you astray. Here we found no correlation um, between the different parameters of target tissue and serum TSH, uh, no correlation, okay? Therefore, the biologic effect of thyroid hormones at the peripheral tissues and not TSH concentrations reflect the clinical severity of hypothyroidism. So let's look at um, uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, TSH and chronic fatigue syndrome patients. And uh, the authors also state that, you know, 
basically the chronic syndrome patients resemble those with non-thoroidal illness, which is kind of the syndrome we're, we're talking about. And, and again, Leslie DeGroot, who father of endocrinology and has written the majority of the major textbooks in endocrinology says treat non-thyroid illness. Well, these patients have chronic non-thyroidal illness due to, again, stress, inflammation, chronic illness, aging, you know, all, all these things. And uh, it's also consistent with uh, Navio's work in the cell danger response, where you get mitochondrial dysfunction, increased reactive oxygen species. And according to, again, Leslie DeGroot, who is one of the founders of modern thy thyroidology and publisher of 462 papers on thyroid and editor of the textbook Endocrinology, uh, the you know, major endocrine textbook for over 30 years, that not chronic non-thyroidal illness should be treated with T3 replacement because T4 would not likely restore tissue euthyroidism. So it he's saying, you know, so this is, you know, the guy, you know, in the endocrine textbooks saying treat these patients with T3, even though they have a normal TSH. So in this study, uh, 98 chronic syndrome patients and 99 controls, they measured thyroid function, metabolic, um, uh, metabolic inflammation, gut wall and integrity, uh, and nutrients improving thyroid function. And uh, the uh, conclusion results for Dr. Holtorf's conclusion that the TSH tests are insufficient to assess thyroid functioning and chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia, these Dutch and Spanish researchers found that TSH levels were indeed similar between ME, uh, so another name for chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, myalgic encephalomyelitis, uh, used more in Europe and Canada, um, patients and healthy controls, but virtually every other thyroid measure was significantly lower in this chronic fatigue syndrome group plus higher percentage of reverse T3, which endocrinologists don't believe in, suggested that increased levels of thyroid inhibition may be present in these patients. Let's look at even PMS. You know, we kind of joke about it if you're not a woman, um, but can be very debilitating and a source of significant discomfort and, and, uh, and you know, basically lower quality of life. They found that 94 94% of patients with PMS had thyroid dysfunction, okay? Uh, this is with the stimulation tests, not just looking at TSH, compared to zero of those who didn't have PMS. And 65% uh, of those patients had thyroid tests in the normal range and could only be diagnosed with thyroid releasing hormone. So um, thyroid releasing hormone, um, thyrotropic releasing hormone is injected. And then you look at the response of TSH and T3. So you're, you're checking 
or central hypothalamic pituitary dysfunction. Um, the Endocrine Society and, um, and others have said, well, we don't need that because we have the high sensitivity uh, TSH. It's not available um, clinically. You can get it uh, compounded, you know, I mean, so they said, because we have, you know, the super sensitive TSH, like it, it makes no sense. It's a different test. Uh, it's testing different things. So um, it's why all these central hypothyroidism patients, which is way more common than primary hypothyroidism, uh, go undetected. Um, but you don't need to do those tests because we have other markers of low thyroid that we'll get to in part three. Um, so they found that all PMS patients had significant improvement in symptoms with thyroid treatment, even though the standard blood tests were normal. So if someone complains of PMS, give them thyroid, give them T3. The study backs you up on that, even though their standard thyroid tests are normal. Another study found 70% of women with PMS had abnormal TRH testing, showing thyroid dysfunction despite having uh, normal TSH. So you're well covered in the literature if that gets questioned, um, but it's likely that you know a knowledgeable patient, when you basically explain to the patient, hey, you're doctor, your gynecologist, your endocrinologist will say, oh, why'd you treat this patient at normal thyroid levels? Just give them this, this study. So, you know, you can put this in their chart. You can give it to them to give it to their doctor. The doctor won't read it. Um, and if you go to our National Academy of Hypothyroidism, nahypothyroidism.org, uh, these studies are available, I think, also on our Holtorf Med, H-O-L-T-O-R-F-M-E-D.com site. Um, we have those, and you can put those in, in the file. And I always give them to the patient. Even though the patient may not read them, they're a little sophisticated for the patient. There's some good graphs and things like that and figures. But even if they don't know, they don't read it, they know that you know and the literature's there. Okay, there's, you know, 500 references between them. Uh, there's like four different review articles that were published and peer reviewed, uh, basically demonstrating what I'm telling you now. So um, in studying the Journal of Endocrinology and Metabolism, so the Endocrine Journal, ex examine the accuracy of using TSH to ident identify hypothyroidism in obese individuals. So, and they looked at, you know, using TRH testing. Study found that while TSH levels were not significantly different between normals and obese individuals, 36% of obese patients had severe, severe thyroid dysfunction not detected. So, you know, majority had thyroid dysfunction, but very severe over a third. So significant. And treat, you're not allowed to treat, um, uh, use T3 for weight loss, but you can treat a deficiency 
causing obesity uh, with T3, but don't put down for weight loss um, because you're actually treating physiologically. You're not treating here. This is to help you gain weight. We're going to make you hyperthyroid. So numerous studies show that um, insulin resistance, especially diabetes, metabolic syndrome, all associated with the reduction in T4, T3 conversion and intracellular deficiency of T3, increased conversion of T4 to reverse T3. You can see all the references there. And these uh, pertain to the um, review articles that I cited. They're at the end of this uh, talk as well, or the, the next talk, but they're also in that those review articles, which I suggest you get um, and, and have those on hand. Uh, additionally, the elevated insulin increases DNA type two. So it will further suppress the TSH because you're getting more T4 to T3 conversion in the pituitary. And you can see what is there even here, nine studies showing that. And diabetics have a 42% reduction in T4, T3 conversion, okay? So uh, multiple reasons give diabetics T3. Also modulate their immunity, which I, I keep saying, which I haven't, talked about doing yet, but I'm trying to lay all the groundwork for that. So investigated the um, T4, T3 conversion in 50 diabetic uh, patients compared to 50 non-diabetics. Again, no difference in TSH and free T4 levels, but diabetic patients had a 46% decrease in free T3 levels. So P equals 0 0.0001. So they're not making T3. They have low intracellular thyroid levels. They need thyroid. Diabetics need T3. Uh, give diabetics T3. I don't care what their TSH level is. Um, you can look at the uh, their free T3 Free T4 ratio was 50% less in diabetic patients because they're not making T3. And the TSH failed to elevate despite the fact that serum T3 was approximately half that of normal. The problem is still in the normal range, right? Um, and another study showed that diabetics have approximately 50% reduction in T3 levels and significantly increased reverse T3 levels and decreased T3 to reverse T3 ratios and studies there. Let's look at dieting, big problem. So many people, you know, it's a new fad diet and there's fasting mimicking diet, which is so bad, but I do worry about all these, you know, fasting, which is shown to have significant longevity and, um, uh, basically, basically health benefits, but, you know, I, I did that and lost, uh, 10 pounds in two weeks. And then I gained 15 pounds back. But so, um, you know, in this study, 25 days of calorie restriction, um, 
were shown to significantly reduce deionase type one, so lowers T4 to T3 conversion um, with a 50% reduction in T3. And it was also associated with increase in deionase type two. So the TSH actually dropped rather than increase with the lower thyroid. So when you fast, especially with carbs, um, that your body will lower the thyroid, lower your metabolism, increase your appetite, tell your body to store fat. Um, so, um, and then you get leptin resistance. So another marker of immune dysfunction and this whole vicious cycle is a leptin level above 12. You may look at the lab, it says, you know, less than 30 is normal, which is crazy. I mean, they're taking all comers of, you know, obese patients um, and those with leptin resistance. And you'll find interestingly is that you may find a person who just can't lose weight and all, everything looks, looks fine. They don't have insulin resistance, but you check their leptin level and it's like 60. So they have leptin resistance. And so one, they're gonna need T3, immune modulation, um, number of the diabetic medications uh, actually help uh, leptin resistance as well. And in the study there, um, uh, there actually, the, again, the TSH was lower, which would, which most doctors would think, well, your thyroid's totally fine. In this study, obese rats were fed um, a high fat diet with one group going through calorie restriction and refeeding. The rats exposed to two cycles of calorie restriction at half the rate of weight loss on the second cycle. Okay, so you go on this diet and you eat whatever X amount of calories and you're like, oh, okay, one week you lose this amount. The next week you do the same thing, you lose half the weight. And then if you stop, you gain the weight back three times as fast on the second cycle compared to the first. So this yo-yo dieting that I don't know, I think the majority of people um, have, have gone through trying to lose weight. I think especially women, uh, it's a major problem. And we'll, we'll check everyone's basal metabolic rate when they come in. We'll check their Thyroflex, which measures their relaxation phase speed of the breaker radialis, um, which, you know, the British Medical Journal, major international journal showed a knowledgeable doctor looking at someone's ankle reflex was a better test for thyroid than blood tests. Well, how can that be? So a normal reflex goes but the lower the thyroid, the lower, the slower the relaxation phase was, so and then do it. So the computer measures that and gives us a, an accurate measure. Uh, it's trying to be very accurate when it's done correctly on you know, correlating with the tissue level of thyroid. And at the end of the second cycle, the rats had a fourfold increase in food efficiency, which Sounds good, food efficiency, which but means you're, you gain weight uh, four times as fast uh, compared to beast rats that had not undergone cyclic calorie restriction. 
And quote, the study suggests that frequent dieting um, uh, may make subsequent weight loss more difficult. And people will swear, oh, I've wrecked my metabolism. Everyone goes, yeah, right, right, right. You're eating, you know, bonbons in the, in the closet at night. And I really like it on, we do it on the first visit. We'll check people's basal metabolic rate where it measures the amount of um, oxygen they use over 10 minutes and extrapolates that. And we find they're usually around 25% uh, low. And people are so happy. They're like, see, see Harold, you look at their husband and go, I told you I have no metabolism. And they're right. When people say they have no metabolism and they say they're not eating much, they're usually not lying, but they're usually just treated like, oh, you're lazy, you have no willpower, you're just, you know, morally, you know, uh, compromised. It's crazy. So a study by Libel found that individuals who significantly dieted in the past um, on average, had a 25% lower metabolism, which was equal to someone who weighed 60% less. And, and again, once you go back to normal eating, it doesn't go back to normal. And this reduction was shown to be present years later. So unless you intervene, your patient is going to have uh, difficulty losing weight for a long time. And they're going to go through diet after diet, this new whatever weight loss uh, gizmo, and they're just going to keep failing. And each time they do, it's going to keep making it worse even. So a 25% reduction equates about, again, 500, 600 calories per day. Other studies confirm that acute or chronic dieting can result in significant decrease in intracellular and circulating T3 by 50%. Number of studies there, which reduces the basal metabolic rate, so the number of calories burned per day at rest by 15 to 40%. Excuse me. And also we we find, you know, kind of when we see more of these, you know, kind of chronic fatigue syndrome patients like over-exercising, over-training, and people just train, 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 especially women, uh, it seems that that threshold is lower. If they overtrain, their metabolism drops, and some of them just end up bed-bound. Uh, we see it with men, too, that are you know uh, basically training for triathlon that they, they have to do and they really pay the price for it. And you gotta treat this multi-system illness and certainly thyroid and immune modulation are key, key, key components of this. And well, again, when normal eating is resumed, thyroid levels of metabolism don't return to normal. It's shown that again, women who we just talked about perform more than moderate exercise, especially if they diet along with it, have reduced T4, T3 conversion, increased reverse T3, and counteracts many of the positive effects. And depression um, is, is major. And it's really interesting that when you look at depressed patients, they have a whole uh, basically lab 
and we're doing more metabolomics where we're looking at many, many things, picture of, you know, basically a Lyme patient, chronic fatigue syndrome patient, um, they, they have that, that same pattern, you know, I think medicine's really pattern recognition, right? And that's how, hey, this, 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 hey, could be that. Um, um, you're the, uh, 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 whatever the show is. <laughs> and it shows so, um, and, and recognize uh, uh, these things. So uh, the bipolar depression, it was down regulation of type one dehydrogenase um, and a reduced uptake of T4 in the cell due to mitochondrial dysfunction. So, and when you look at depressed patients and throughout, and I think it was studied by some Harvard researchers, and they were saying how depressed patients are, you know, slightly hyperthyroid. And I'm just like, oh, they don't get it. Okay, who won, who wrote this and who published this? But, you know, cause they had low normal TSH, high normal T4. I guess it's reasonable to say, hey, those people are high ends of thyroid. And what doctor is gonna give them thyroid, right? But hopefully with this knowledge, you'll know, damn, these patients have, you know, basically uh, low intracellular thyroid. They have um, uh, poor transport uh, in, into the cell. They have poor T4, T3 conversion. Uh, they have hypothalamic pituitary dysfunction. So they have low TSH that's uh, does not, is not indicative of their tissue levels of thyroid. Um, and they found that, and again, they give T4 and I, I can picture the conclusion is that, you know, they gave T4, didn't help them. So here's proof that they are not hypothyroid. Although the study shows T3 is a better antidepressant than antidepressants. Largest study ever done on antidepressants. The STAR report uh, showed T3 better antidepressant than the antidepressants with less side effects. Um, double blind placebo controlled trial, 50 patients with normal, um, uh, normal thyroid function defined by normal TSH. They were, um, uh, Again, depressed patients randomized, randomized to receive 25 micrograms of T3 or placebo. So low dose of T3, in addition to their antidepressant uh, therapy. And if you look at you know, antidepressants, they generally don't work for more than 50% of patients. And the ones that do work, it stops working after a year. Uh, the study found almost a two-fold increase in response rate and a four times, uh, 4.5 times greater likelihood of experience a positive response uh, over six, the six week period. And side effects were higher in the placebo group, including a significant increase in nervousness in the placebo group. And we see that in a lot of studies. And so here's, um, I've seen his stuff lately, but this is a little old, but um, you know, just, Kind of like, sounds to me like you're just a little depressed, you know, just missing that, that giant boulder of, of low thyroid. So 
impaired sensitivity to thyroid hormones associated with diabetes and metabolic syndrome. It is a major cause and effect. It's a chicken or the egg. One causes the other and the other makes the other worse. So it's, you know, what causes what, but you got to intervene and fix their thyroid. You got to, they all have immune dysfunction. And, uh, and when you do that, you find you're going to help your, uh, your diabetic insulin resistant patients tremendously. And um, so they state higher values and resistance to thyroid hormone indices are associated with obesity, metabolic syndrome, diabetes, and diabetes related mortality. Resistance to thyroid hormone reflect energy balance problem is driving type two diabetes. So they're uh, showing that, hey, we gave thyroid, but it didn't work, which are really looking at T4 and say, well, so they're thyroid resistant. And there's a lot of reasons to be thyroid resistant. All these reasons that we talked about, um, in addition, immune activation of coagulation with fibrin. Um, another thing you want to check with your chronic, um, chronically ill patients is a uh, coagulation panel, which I think I, I, I have that the, on the next uh, segment. But here's a study, TSH may not be a good marker for adequate thyroid hormone replacement. And, and these are quotes, measurement of serum concentrations of total thyroxine, free thyroxine and TSH made with sensitive immunometric um, assay, did not accept in patients with gross, so you know the most excessive abnormalities, distinguish euthyroid, from those who are receiving inadequate amount of thyroid and are therefore of little, if any, value in monitoring patients on thyroxine replacement. It's like, okay, there, someone said it. The serum concentration of thyroid stimulating hormone is unsatisfactory as the thyrotropes enter appear more sensitive to changes in the concentration of thyroxine in the circulation of other tissues. So what we've been saying, the TSH does not correlate. It is clear that serum thyroid hormone and thyroid stimulating hormone concentrations cannot be used in any degree of confidence to classify patients as receiving satisfactory, insufficient, or excessive amounts of thyroxine replacement. So suppressing the TSH is not hyperthyroidism. Okay, you want to do some things to prove it to the doctor down the street that sees your patients or the endocrinologist. Um, you want to make sure you check uh, like an NTX or CTX and show you're not breaking down bone. Um, I can tell you a lot of stories with endocrinologists behind us who just was blasting us constantly and saying, you're going to get osteoporosis and you just see their bone density just go up like this, you know, um, and uh, or a fib. I'm going to talk about that on the third part where um, the Sowen article that the endocrinologists point to that shows that giving thyroid uh, causes a fib, but which it can, you, if you try to do it, you can, but if you're not over replacing them, the suppressed TSH is not a risk for a fib. 
Um, actually, low thyroid is a, uh, is a big risk for AFib. And the Salwin article, the ones that got AFib and had suppressed TSH were not on thyroid. So they had such severe disease and heart disease dramatically lowers that TSH. You want to give these heart failure patients thyroid, especially T3. And everyone's like, oh, shoot, don't want to give that. I don't want to cause AFib. But it showed that the ones on thyroid replacement had no incidence of AFib. So the article, instead of the using it as uh, to show that, hey, excess of thyroid with stress TSH causes AFib, giving thyroid basically causing suppressed TSH prevents AFib, okay? And studies showing us actually post-op cardiac surgery, giving T3 IV uh, uh, prevents AFib, so many instances of that. And also BPC, uh, BPC 157 uh, lowers PR interval, so prevents um, ventricular arrhythmias, but also uh, AFib. Uh, we had a, an executive director, her husband came with AFib, uh, gave him um, BPC-157, a big dose, broke his AFib. So it's a great way to uh, prevent arrhythmias. You also have, you know, a lot of the Lyme patients um, have uh, basically palpitations and they're always going to the, to the hospital, POTS patients, you know, arrhythmias and they say, well, you know, it's not a significant arrhythmia, just a lot of APCs, um, PVCs, and they send them home, but giving BPC can really calm that down. Also getting out of EMFs. Again, that's a whole another lecture, which uh, there's one available at uh, that you can, you can watch um, really uh, will getting out of EMFs can really reduce the risk, the incidence of palpitations as well. And get you sleeping better and EMFs are much more toxic than we know. When I started re review, I said, okay, let me review EMFs. I'm hearing all these you know, negative things. I went in it thinking that I'm going to find they're fine. Uh, you know, they're everywhere. Who, how bad can they be? They are bad. Um, you know, and I will not get in an electric car, let alone own one. Um, and I actually go through the studies on that. So you can save the world, but uh, kill yourself and uh, get cancer. But the poor diagnostic sensitivity and false positive uh, rates associated with such measurements render them virtually useless in clinical practice. We consider that biochemical uh, test of thyroid function of little, if any, value in, in uh, uh, clinically in patients receiving the ROXM replacement. Further adjustments to dose should be made according to the patient's clinical response. Here's a study, and again, uh, the endocrinologist journal. I'll take a cheap shot at endocrinologists here. You know, how do you hide information from endocrinologists? Um, answer, put it in their journal. Um, so Journal of Endocrinology Metabolism. Uh, some of my good friends are endocrinologists. I'm just jabbing them. Uh, study 403 men, 
they looked associated between uh, TSH, uh, T4, free T4, T3, thyroid binding globulin, and reverse T3. And they demonstrated that TSH uh, and or T4 levels are poor indicators of tissue thyroid levels and thus in a large percentage of patients cannot be uh, used to be determined if a person's euthyroid uh, at the tissue level. In fact, T4 had a negative correlation with tissue thyroid level. So that's what I was saying is that a high T4 actually more often correlates unless you have Graves' disease. And people say, well, what about Graves? You're going to know they have Graves' disease, okay? They're totally different. They are, you know, where pulse is high, they're losing weight, you know, they have the bulging eyes. Um, and with immune modulatory therapies, you can um, uh, get rid of that. You want to keep patients from getting those bulging eyes, it's a, it doesn't matter the amount of thyroid, it's the cross-reactivity of those antibodies to the back of the eye that causes the problem, the inflammation, then they get scar and fat buildup there. Um, higher T4 levels were associated with decrease peripheral conversion T4, T3, and high reverse T3. Study demonstrates that reverse T3 was the best indicator of tissue thyroid levels and was inversely correlated with physical performance scores. Um, also demonstrated that T3 reversity ratio is currently the best indicator of tissue levels of thyroid. And the port sensitivity of TSH T4 level further decrease in the presence of chronic illness, which can summarize kind of what I've been saying here. Uh, these high reversity levels were accompanied by high free T4 levels. Again, they're still in the normal range. These changes in thyroid hormone concentration may be explained by a decrease in peripheral thyroid hormone metabolism. Increasing reverse T3 levels could uh, then represent a catabolic state of entropizine to avert T3 syndrome. But it's really thyroid transport, okay? Uh, bisphenol A blocks the thyroid receptor, but not in the pituitary. So drinking those plastic water bottles and, you know, they replaced BPA with, with another one, I think it's BPC, um, not BPC, one of these, but um, it may not be any better. Uh, so the pituitary is very resistant to blockage by these endocrine disruptors. Um, Immune activation of coagulation, which I can go on and on about, and you know, giving heparin to these chronically ill patients, Lyme patients, especially obesity patients, the worst. Uh, when I have obesity, my blood was so thick you could not take it out with a 14 gauge needle. My D dimer um, was 100 times normal, uh, and uh, I just showed it to my cardiologist to see what he said. You know, do you have a PE? That's all I can say. But, and I went to heart failure and he said that, oh, maybe you can get 10% better in 10 years. I could not stand up straight. I couldn't take me 45 minutes to walk up 10 flights of stairs. And uh, within a year after doing peptides and, and other stuff, I would say, you know, stem cells and exosomes, 
ozone i love phosphatidylcholine i love uh with the sears patients the, the kind of don't really use the binders i don't i just i'm too add to take years to try to get better i'll use a little bit of them but um uh i find phosphatidylcholine uh tends to to bind and i got argyria which is another story but uh, because I did something dumb and used the product that I told everyone not to use and turn blue, which is basically irreversible and doesn't chelate out, you know, basically binds to the, the uh, skin, the silver does, and then oxidizes when sun hits it. So, but was able to reverse it um, with mainly phosphatidylcholine, uh, other stuff. But if you're gonna do IV silver, which I love, uh, works great. Um, you wanna use Argentin and uh, because it is an actual silver hydrosol and not a silver salt like some of the other ones. I don't know how I got into that, but. but um, and also as patients, if they have, uh, so we'll check this on everyone and you'll be very, very surprised how so many people are hypercoagulable. They're actively basically in this almost low level DIC state. And it lays down fibrin. So oxygen takes normally two minutes, two seconds to get in the cells. Now it takes up to two minutes. Uh, hormones can't get in, nutrients can't get in, waste products can't get out. Clean that up, little heparin, very low dose, almost homeopathic, 5,000 twice a day. Uh, no, under the tongue doesn't work. Um, and uh, you can use, and also vascular enzymes, but in order to get rid of it, you probably need heparin. Um, Lovenox also works, but um, heparin is much more immune modulatory as well, and is also anti-parasitic, um, anti-babesia. Um, but the newer, um, uh, the, the, the newer anticoagulants do not work. So uh, looking at this study, they found that really a high normal free T4, a low normal free T3 is worse than just having a low free T3. So here's uh, basically uh, survival rates. And this is a three-year study, um, thousand plus hospitals, uh, hospitalized patients based on their TSH, free T3, free T4, compared the different groups. And they found that a normal TSH uh, with a high free T4 and a low free T3 had the highest all-cause mortality over the three years. So, um, you know, this is again, chronic non-thyroidal illness. So that high free T4, low free T3, normal TSH or low normal TSH, um, you wanna fix that. So conclusion, both decreased free T3 and elevated free T4 are independent predictors of long-term mortality risk in hospitalized um, uh, chronic patients with non-thyroidal illness, which all the hospitalized, hospitalized patients will have. Um, it's the chronic, we're treating chronic non-thyroidal illness. 
the relative risk of an elevated free T4 and low free T3 versus just low free T3. So they were 1.5 to 2.2 times more likely, uh, you know, higher uh, mortality, 0.001. So shows mitochondrial dysfunction is not a good thing. Um, you know, so we'll get into, you know, how do you start diagnosing low thyroid? You know, symptoms are key and you want to document that, you know, fatigue, depression, weight gain, uh, constipation, cold intolerance, poor memory, weakness, pale skin, PMS, migraines. In this study, you look at the frequency of these symptoms in someone who's hypothyroid versus normals. So slow relaxation phase of ankle reflex, 77% versus 26.5 normals. Just dry skin, significant cold intolerance, coarse skin, puffiness, low pulse. Uh, they don't sweat. Um, weight gain is significant. Paresthesias, cold skin. Um, lack of hearing is, is interesting. And when you look at the symptoms and the sensitivity and specificity in the positive predictive value, if someone has a slow ankle reflection, you can do this manually and just watch and you'll see over time, you'll see normal and then you'll see low. You're, oh my gosh, you're so low and often have, you know, lose their lateral portion of their eyebrow, but they're especially, you know, pick up 77%, but their specificity, 93%, positive predictive value, 92%. So that's, you know, higher than, than, you know, a single lab basically, or as high. Then you add just puffiness to that, 94% positive predictive value. They don't sweat, they have weight increase. And when you look at the, you know, combine these, it's kind of like the lotto, where you multiply the likelihood and you just get, you know, 0.0001, you know, percent chance. Um, so I suggest you have a symptom assessment like this, um, and you can scan it very quickly and see if they have thyroid symptoms. If you want, you can call the office and we can mail you our intake which we also I highly recommend is that on every visit, uh, we have a chart that has 10 symptoms. And when we published our outcomes, we had the 22 centers, uh, fibromyalgia fatigue centers, uh, where uh, each visit with uh, 10 center frequency and severity and an overall sense of well-being and, and, and uh, energy where we saw, we did 500 patient study. Um, they saw on average 7.2 physicians without an improvement, uh, came to us by the fourth visit. It was close to 90% got significantly better. And I think it was close to 70% got substantially better. After the fourth visit, they doubled their energy and sense of well-being. Uh, again, after seeing 7.2 physicians, then we did a multi-center study of 5,000 patients, which the results basically mirrored that. So you can 
get the same same results and that's before we had peptides and so many things so um that's when i was fighting the texas medical board over you know basically bioidentical hormones um, and things like that so um we've come a long way and so our we're able to get patients from point a to point you know to better much quicker um, not saying anything's easy, it's multi-system illness, everyone's different, but you want to have this and you also want to track um, how patients are doing and see where they're, where they're not getting better. And so here's, you know, IL-6 is a, is a major issue and we, we talk about EMFs, EMFs increase IL-6 among other things. And they cause that immune shift. So again, Th1, the stuff inside the cell, Th2, the stuff outside the cell, everyone's like this. And the thymus involuting shifts that. And uh, by age 40 or so, you have only maybe 10% of your thymus left. And that's when all those diseases of aging start increasing. And so any chronic infections, uh, Lyme, uh, chronic syndrome, fibromyalgia, Sears, inflammation, autoimmunity, dysbiosis, neurodegenerative diseases, toxic exposure, aging, um, all those things uh, will have this. So modulating the immune system is a key to longevity, key to multi-system illness, a key to so many of these issues, even look, obesity, migraines, also cancer, traumatic brain injury, protecting against EMFs. So, and so typical we'll use, you know, uh, the thymosins, the um, body protection compound, and we'll, we'll talk more about those things. LDN fits right in there. And again, I'm, don't go too much into LDN uh, because you have so much background with all the other lectures here. So thymus evolution is influenced at age, uh, start a sharp decline around age 15. It has a, uh, a year uh, around 40 to 45. And well, uh, I have a longevity lecture that you can watch. that talks about a, a immunosenescence where um, basically fixing the immune system is gonna fix a lot of these issues, but increases susceptibility to infections, you get um, dysfunctional mitochondria, excuse me, increased reactive oxygen species, glycosylation, increased propensity for autoimmune disease. And you look at chronic fatigue syndrome patient, Lyme patients, they have multiple low level autoimmune and they go to the rheumatologist, they, they get diagnosed with pre-lupus, mixed connective tissue disease, meaning that they got something going on, um, antiphospholipid syndrome, which goes away, but the endocrinologist tells them, or rheumatologist says doesn't, but reverse it all the time. Um, neurodegenerative diseases, cardiovascular diseases, uh, decreased stem cell function, all those things. Also pineal gland calcification by age 30. So the pineal um, peptides, uh, pinealion and epitalin, probably the most anti-aging substance you can find. And um, I have some studies of that later on. 
And so here's your thymus. Here you can see by age 40, it's basically kaput. And then you look at the diseases of aging. So this is the blip here is childhood diseases. And then it just goes up because of this involution of thyroid, of, excuse me, of thymus, which causes that Th1, Treg to Th2, Th17 shift. And that's when you start getting all those diseases of aging, but you don't have to. And here's just a kind of a commentary of we underestimate the importance of uh, the thymus in man. We think, oh, okay, it goes away. Well, it big deal, goes away. And both these areas of research, it's obvious that the thymus uh, must be active throughout life to continue good health. Uh, the current awareness of the central role of the immune system to healthy life has been endorsed by an increased uh, prevalence of infectious disease, autoimmune condition, and cancers, um, and as we live longer. And I mean, everyone's sick. You know, at any party I go to, so many people come up and everyone's sick. It's like them, their daughter, their husband, their you know, family member, their friend. And they've been to numerous doctors. I mean, that's kind of the norm now. Chemicals known to rapidly affect thymus atrophy are numerous. Uh, hormones, virus, bacteria, endotoxins, uh, protozoa, tumors, antibiotics, radiation, deficiencies in zinc, which, you know, with COVID, uh, you hear a lot about zinc, inadequate diet, environmental pollutants, stress, uh, heavy metals, uh, quote, at the present moment, I do not believe that we'd accurately assess the uh, vital role of the adult thymus. And it's basically to have a long live healthy adult, you need a healthy thymus. So what, what do you do? Well, you can't replace the thymus, all they're doing that in animal studies, give thymic peptides. Um, and according to the uh, CDC even, Approximately 80% of age individuals are afflicted by at least one chronic disease as a result of the decline of the thymic related immune function. Okay. So why not fix it? And the studies are, it's so safe. I stated many things have negative effects on the thymus, um, also low growth hormone, stress, pregnancy. Um, if you notice, you know, women, they, you know, tend to age quicker after pregnancy um, and progressive thymic uh, dysfunction and immunosenescence uh, results in, you know, all those things there uh, that we talked about. Any questions or comments you may have, please email me, linda, L-I-N-D-A, at ldnrt.org. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for joining us today. We really appreciated your company. Until next time, stay safe and keep well.